When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 37, Althelm. Having completed our survey of West Saxon history up to the point that Wessex was transformed into an entirely new entity by King Alfred, I want to loop back and spend a few episodes discussing the cultural achievements of Wessex and some notable West Saxons before we move on to considering the other kingdoms of early Anglo-Saxon England. To that end, I want to begin with a scholar who, although less well-known today than his younger contemporary Bede, nevertheless commanded the respect of an international readership in the late 7th century. The name of that scholar was Aldhelm. Michael Lappage, the esteemed professor of Anglo-Latin literature, called Aldhelm the first English man of letters on account of his vast learning. Bede said of him that he was the most learned in every respect, and that he was both a master of style as well as possessing an unrivaled knowledge of both classical and patristic writings. Althelm's writings set the standard for Anglo-Latin literature that would continue to be imitated up to the time of the Norman Conquest. Indeed, each of his works inspired Latin and Old English imitators, who through their engagement with Althelm's legacy, advanced the development of Anglo-Saxon intellectual history. Therefore, although he is not well known today, Althelm's influence was truly immense, greater perhaps even than Bede's. Yet despite this influence, much of Althelm's life is unknown to us. Bede gives a very meagre sketch of his life in the fifth book of his ecclesiastical history, and this formed the basis of the date 709 given for his death in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but there is very little to go on here. Most of the information that we have comes from later biographies, written by men based at the monastery of Malmesbury. The first, written by an Italian named Fericius, is roundly condemned in the second, written by William of Malmesbury, for its inaccuracy and the author's tendency to conjecture on usually misunderstood Old English words. However, William's own work cannot be easily corroborated, since many of the sources he claims to have used are now lost. And at some points, he himself admits that he is basing his work entirely on his own conjecture. Such, for example, is his claim that Althelm was born in 639 or 640. This date he derives entirely from the idea that Althelm was in his 70s when he died in 709. William cites no evidence for this belief besides his own admitted self-conjecture and Bede's date for Althelm's death, which itself cannot be verified. We don't even know where Althelm was born. 
The usual supposition is that he was a West Saxon, and William supports this by claiming that he was the son of an otherwise unknown brother of King Ina. But in truth, we have no way of knowing where he was born. Add to this that none of his surviving works were written in Old English, and we can't even use dialect to suggest his origins. Similar problems are found when we consider the subject of his early education. Since Althelm's legacy rests almost entirely on his work as an intellectual, the nature of his early education is a subject of some importance. A letter to Althelm by one of his students refers to his being educated by one of our race, suggesting that he was educated by someone who was not an Anglo-Saxon. Since the identity of the student writing to Althelm is unknown, we cannot say with any certainty what their cultural background was. A long tradition holds that Althelm was initially educated by an Irish monk, and that consequently, his work displays a strong Irish influence. To support this, scholars will cite instances in which Althelm displays familiarity with Irish sources, or uses words more commonly found in Hiberno-Latin than Continental Latin. William of Malmesbury explains all of this by suggesting that Althelm was educated as a boy at Malmesbury by an Irish monk named Moyle Duve. This suggestion is problematic, though, because no such monk is mentioned anywhere other than William's work. Michael Lappage also has argued convincingly that the supposedly Irish character of Althelm's style rests on mistaken assumptions. He points out that Althelm's style is very different from that which we see emanating from Ireland in the 7th century. For example, Althelm is known to have practiced a style of Latin writing called hermeneutic Latin, which was characterized by the deliberate use of unusual and arcane vocabulary, as well as extremely complicated grammar and syntax, all used as a means to display one's education. In contrast, Hiberno-Latin from this period, while similarly making use of obscure vocabulary, tends to use extremely simple syntax in contrast with Althelm's, which Lappage describes as tortuous, a description that certainly has some merit to it, as anyone who's tried to read any hermeneutic Latin can probably tell you. Instead, Lappage points to a reference in the letter from a student just mentioned to Aldhelm's having been to Rome as grounds to suggest that the race the student mentions was Italian rather than Irish. From this, Lappage argues that the letter is referring to Aldhelm's education at Canterbury in the school of Hadrian, a monk originally from North Africa but who had been trained in Rome and subsequently came to Britain in 669 with the reforming Archbishop of Canterbury, Theodore. We know from Althelm's own writings that he was a student of Hadrian's at Canterbury, since he refers to the monk's correction of his poor earlier education. It's worth bearing in mind that clearly Althelm's early education wasn't that bad, since it thoroughly versed him in Latin. However, Althelm saw some error in it that was corrected at Hadrian's school. Exactly what that error might have been, I will speculate on later. In a letter Althelm wrote to Hadrian himself, probably in the year 675, Althelm refers to the curriculum of Hadrian's school. While he was at Canterbury, he studied jurisprudence, poetic metre, computus, and astronomy. There is even some suggestion, although Althelm doesn't refer to it in the letter, that at Hadrian's school, people were being taught Greek. To put this in perspective, the knowledge of Greek seems to have been extremely rare in Western Europe, where Latin had been the lingua franca since long before the fall of Rome. It was in the Eastern Empire that Greek was the common language. As a result, Western intellectuals up to the period of the Renaissance usually could not read Greek. 
However, Hadrian is thought to have brought the study of the language to Canterbury, where he passed it to some Anglo-Saxon students. Althelm, as part of his hermeneutic style, loved to use words deriving from Greek, largely to give his language an air of erudition, but there is ongoing scholarly debate as to whether he could himself read Greek, since you don't need to be able to read Greek to be able to use Latin words that are ultimately derived from Greek, just like you don't need to be able to speak French to be able to use English words that are derived from French. Most of Althelm's writings don't really give any evidence to suggest that he could read Greek. The one exception, though, is found in his letter to Arecius. In this letter, which was written to a person named Arecius, who has been identified by some scholars as King Aldfrith of Northumbria, we find various treaties, one on numerology and two on poetic metre. In one of these treatises on metre, Althelm seems to cite the work of Hephaestion, a Greek grammarian who lived in Alexandria during the reign of the Antonines, and whose work was seemingly never translated into Latin. Of course, that there is no Latin copy surviving doesn't mean that one never existed, but this influence of Hephaestion has been seen by some scholars to suggest that Althelm was able to read Greek, and that some Greek texts were brought to Canterbury, either by the Greek Archbishop Theodore or by Hadrian. In addition to these subjects taught by Hadrian, Althelm must have also been a voracious reader, since a survey of all the allusions and references found in his works indicates a vast array of classical and patristic reading, covering a variety of diverse subjects. It is unlikely that Althelm read all of this material while he was at Canterbury, since it seems that he was only there for, at most, just over two years. We know that Althelm was at Canterbury at some point after 669, and in the letter written by Althelm to Hadrian, we get the impression that his education there was interrupted, probably by his being elected as abbot of Malmesbury. Later tradition deriving from William, and from one extremely suspicious charter surviving from Malmesbury, holds that Althelm was elected abbot there in 675. But Michael Lappage has argued that references within Althelm's surviving letters, particularly his letter to Geraint, king of Domnonia, indicates that he became abbot of Malmesbury in 672, since he seems to allude to attending the Council of Hartford convened by Theodore in that year, and this is probably what interrupted his education in Kent. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy what I'm doing here, then it really helps me when you leave a review or a rating on the podcast provider you're using to listen to this, when you subscribe to the show's YouTube channel, or when you become a supporter over on Patreon, where you can get access to bonus episodes, ad-free episodes, and transcripts for as little as $3 a month. And speaking of patrons, I want to give a shout-out to Colin, Shauna Scott, Matthew Prouse, Susan Olson, Viv B., and Father Christopher R. Makiolek, who recently all became patrons. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you're enjoying the extra material you now have access to. Also, if I mispronounce any of your names, please let me know, and I will gladly correct the issue. Anyway, back to the show. At various points in his writing, Althelm alludes to his time as abbot being an extremely busy one, due to the pressing needs of pastoral care. Some of this seems to have been taken up by building churches. William presents us with a story about his renovating the church of St. Peter and Paul at Malmesbury, and others have suggested that he was tasked with expanding the parish system into the newly West Saxon West Country, which would ultimately form the Diocese of Sherborne. If you'll recall in the episode on Ina, you'll remember that one of the tasks that the king undertook was to divide the large diocese of Winchester into an eastern half based in Winchester and a western half based in Sherborne. He did this on the death of Huddy, Bishop of Winchester, in 705, and it was in that year that Aldhelm was selected as the first Bishop of Sherborne, an office he would hold for four years until he died in 709, at least according to Bede. It may seem odd to take William's word that Althelm built churches, when I've otherwise been quite suspicious of him. This is because there is evidence from Althelm himself which supports the idea that he was a prolific church builder. Among his writings, there survive five short Carmina Ecclesiastica, ecclesiastical songs, which are poems composed for the dedication of various churches. Two of them match the dedications of the churches that William tells us Althelm built at Malmesbury, the rest of the Carmina suggest other churches Althelm played a role in dedicating and presumably in building. It's worth noting that it was not unusual for a learned ecclesiastic to write dedicatory poems for new churches. Both Bede and Alcuin also did this, so it seems entirely reasonable for Althelm to have done it also. Throughout his life, Althelm was also a committed partisan of the Roman Easter and Tontia. 
If you'll refer back to the episodes on Oswiu and Bede, then you'll remember that the calculation of Easter and the correct way to administer a tonsia were hot-button issues in 7th century England. This resulted from a clash between two distinct missionary traditions in England, Roman in the south and Irish in the north. Althelm's education makes his commitment to the Roman tradition interesting, and it may indicate something about the errors in his previous education that he claimed Hadrian corrected. Although there is doubt over how Irish his early education was, if the story of Moilduv has any truth to it, then it is possible that Althelm, prior to his going to Canterbury, was a priest in the Irish custom. It may have been while at Canterbury that Althelm was converted to the Roman side of the argument, and this may have been the inadequacy of his early education corrected by his time with Hadrian. This is speculation, though, since we don't know if there was anything especially Irish about Althelm's early education, and it needs to be said that if Malmesbury was a hotbed of Irish influence, it seems odd that Althelm would have been as popular with the monks there as he seemingly was if he was seeking to remake the community from the ground up. Despite his busy schedule and his role in various controversies of the day, Althelm still found time to produce an impressive corpus of Latin works, which warrants some brief discussion here. I've already mentioned his letters and his ecclesiastical songs. In addition to these, he also wrote poetry and more theoretical works, such as the Letter to Arecius and his magnum opus De Virginitate, On Virginity. This latter work consists of both a prose treatise and a poetic meditation on the spiritual virtues of virginity, written allegedly in response to a request from some nuns, at some point during his abacacy or episcopacy. The exact date is unknown. The work influenced writers such as Bede and various anonymous preachers, who made extensive use of it to promote the idea of a chaste life. Althelm's most popular work, though, is found in his letter to Arecius, in the midst of its treatises on numerology and poetic meter, Althelm offers the reader 100 poetic riddles, ostensibly to demonstrate the metrical principles he's been describing. He calls these riddles enigmata, enigmas or mysteries, and it seems that he'd composed them at some point prior to his writing the letter, since subject-wise they have little to do with the text in which they survive. As is the usual case with riddles, they mainly take the form of obtuse or unusual descriptions of objects, and then a question of, tell me what I'm called. Although it can be difficult to tell what the correct answers to them are, they seem mostly concerned with aspects of the material world, such as plants, animals, and minerals, but they also include more metaphysical subjects, such as creation, fate, and the sphere of heaven, as well as some mythological subjects, such as the Minotaur and Scylla. The Enigmata of Althelm were extremely popular, often being copied without the rest of the letter, to circulate independently. They seem also to have appealed especially to Old English poets, since Althelm's riddles may well have formed the inspiration for the almost 100 Old English riddles found in the Exeter book, of which only four are translations of Enigmata, the rest being entirely original creations, indicating the extent to which the riddle form entertained creative Anglo-Saxons. Althelm, like Bede and Alcuin, is one of the intellectual giants of Anglo-Saxon England. While he certainly is not as influential today as Bede, he was nevertheless highly respected in his day for his vast erudition. 
Despite this, though, modern scholars have been somewhat mixed in their assessment of him. None deny his learning, but there is a pervasive sense that he spent too much of his effort on self-conscious ostentation and intellectual games like the Enigmata, when he could have devoted more time to producing works which might have secured him a place as an important intellectual. In short, they lament that he wasn't more like Bede. This seems somewhat unfair to me, since it surely is most important for historians to judge their subjects based on what they did rather than what they didn't do. Their failings are important to note, of course, but often the severity of these is largely contingent on context. Althelm wasn't a bigot, for example, he was just guilty of some intellectual vanity. So, to judge Althelm for not being more like Bede ignores the impressive qualities which Althelm undeniably had, and which Bede himself respected. It is these actual qualities which must form the basis of our assessment, and when he is judged on these merits, Althelm's legacy is undeniably important, since his writings came to influence much subsequent Anglo-Latin and Old English culture. The popularity of riddles was partly due to Althelm, and in the late 10th century, hermeneutic Latin became a staple of educated English writing, often with Althelm being a direct influence. Althelm is a figure that we must understand then, if we are to engage with the intellectual history of Anglo-Saxon England, and it's my hope that this brief survey of his life gives some insight into this important figure, and will prove useful to understanding the later writings of Anglo-Saxon authors. But for now, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.